We are studying tonight uh, Article 18 of the Belgic Confession on page 61, the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. We confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets, whom he sent into the world at the time appointed by him, his own only begotten and eternal Son, who took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. Really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities, sin accepted. Being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without the means of man. And did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon him to save both. Therefore we confess, in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the body of David according to the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of Mary, born of a woman, a branch of David, a rod from the stem of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham, and was made like his brethren in all things, sin accepted, so that, in truth, he is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've already noted the fact that this uh, fourth part of the Belgic Confession, which deals with the doctrine of salvation, has a kind of order of salvation in it. And I want to renew, uh, review just briefly the first three articles of that. We uh, see in Article 16, the first article of the section, that all our election has its fountain and source in God's eternal election. God chose his people, his own, from before the foundation of the world. In Article 17, we talked about the promise of God, and we see that promise of God then as the beginning of of the fulfillment of his purpose of election. By the promise, he comes to his elect and begins to speak to them of the work which he will do in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here in Article 18, with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to see the fulfillment of that promise. So the promise begins the fulfillment of the purpose of election and the incarnation begins the fulfillment of the promise. And that means then, of course, that this um, doctrine of the incarnation, this event of the incarnation, rather, is an uh, exceedingly important event in the history of the world. I think we may say without exaggeration that there are three events in the history of the world, perhaps four, that are more important than any other events that ever have taken place or ever will take place. And those are the incarnation, death, 
and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then also his return in glory. And our uh, dating system, I think rightly, uh, recognizes the importance of this event of the Incarnation by dividing the history of the world into two great parts. Before Christ, we have the old creation, and after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the beginning of the new creation, which will culminate in the creation of the new heavens and the new earth at his return. We see that this um, uh, incarnation of the Lord Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the promise of God. In the article itself, we confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent into the world at the time appointed by him his own only begotten and eternal Son. And we see that also in Luke chapter 1. First of all, we see it in the Song of Mary, the words of Mary by which she responded to the prophecy of uh, Elizabeth, her cousin. She said, In verses 54 and 55 of Luke 1, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Mary recognized that in the conception of her son, there was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. What he had spoken to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Zacharias also mentions this in his uh, words following the birth of John the Baptist. That's in uh, verses 72 and 73. To perform, he says, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. There are then three things that we want to talk about in this article. The first is that this work of the Incarnation is entirely a work of God. We want to see that it is a work of God. That's first. The second place, thing we want to see, is that in this incarnation, our Lord Jesus Christ assumed our human nature. And the third thing we want to see is that because of this incarnation, he is our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Now, in order to... uh, emphasize the truth that the Incarnation is indeed the work of God, as all the work of salvation is, of course, the work of God, I want to uh, take you to Matthew chapter 1 and show you, first of all, how that genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we find there in Matthew 1, emphasizes at least this one truth, that this is entirely God's work. 
And there are, I think, six different ways in which we can see this as God's work from that genealogy alone. We have, first of all, of course, the fact that the genealogy is introduced by reference to David and Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God made a promise to David that he would give him a son to sit on his throne forever. And when Matthew introduces the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ with those words, that he is the son of David, he is pointing us to the truth that this is God fulfilling the promise he had made to David. And the same is true of the reference to Abraham. God had promised Abraham a son in whom all the nations of the world, a seed in whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Matthew is here pointing us to the fact that God is here fulfilling that promise, bringing about the seed of the woman who will bless all the nations of the world. So that's the first thing. God is here in this um, chapter fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham and to David. The second way in which the genealogy shows us that this is indeed the work of God is that it makes reference to both Abraham and Isaac. And we cannot help, though the genealogy itself does not reference the fact, we cannot help but remember in that connection, of course, the barrenness of their wives. Neither Sarah nor Rebekah was able to bring forth children, and it was only by the miraculous intervention of God that the seed of the woman was born and was able to continue beyond the generation of Abraham and then also beyond the generation of Isaac. God intervened to accomplish his purpose through those women. The third way in which the genealogy uh, teaches us that this is altogether God's work is that the genealogy really traces the rise, the glory, and the fall of David's house. So not only does the genealogy teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the son of David, but the genealogy shows us that it was impossible that the Lord be born from this house because of the nature of that house's history. If you look at verse 17, you see this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And I think the whole point of Matthew there in verse 17 is to divide the history of David's house into three parts. You have from Abraham to David, the rise of that house. Then you have from David until the captivity in Babylon, the glory of that house, when kings from David's line did sit on the throne of the people of God. And then you have the fall of that house from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ. In fact, by the time the Lord Jesus Christ was born, that house had faded entirely into obscurity. The Jews still hoped for a king from David's house to deliver them from the Romans and to establish again an earthly kingdom, but they certainly were not looking to Joseph, 
the father of David, that obscure carpenter in the city of Nazareth in Galilee. What good thing, they were inclined to say, can come out of Nazareth. And so it was impossible from that perspective that this house of David any longer bring forth a king to sit on David's throne. It was by God's work and only by his work that this was accomplished. And this is further demonstrated, I think, and here we come to the fourth point, by the fact that there is actually in this genealogy of Jesus Christ, this particular genealogy of Jesus Christ, no direct connection with the line of David. For the genealogy ends this way in verse 16, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. In other words, it was Joseph who was descended from David, and Jesus was not the natural son of Joseph, but the son of Mary, Joseph's wife. There's no direct connection, therefore, established with that line of David here in this genealogy. It's done in Luke through a different uh, series of generations following David. But here in Matthew, there is no direct connection. The connection is in Joseph and Mary together. And that too shows us that it could only be by the work of God's grace that our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the son of David, and the heir to his throne. Two more things yet which point us to this. The first of those things is that we need to pay attention to the women who are mentioned in this genealogy. There are four of them mentioned. And it's very interesting, by the way, that the genealogy even includes references to women. That's quite a rare thing in the genealogies of the Old Testament for women to be mentioned. But there are four of them mentioned here in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are not the great heroes of faith like Sarah and so on, but they are first Tamar, verse 3, secondly Rahab, verse 5, thirdly Ruth, verse 5, and finally Bathsheba in verse 6. Three of those women were Gentiles, Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab. And when you go back to the Old Testament history regarding these women, you find, first of all, that the child of Tamar, who was an ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ, was born of an incestuous relationship between Tamar and her father-in-law, Judah. How can such sin bring forth the seed of the woman? The second of those women, Rahab, was a resident of the city of Jericho, a member of those nations which God had doomed to destruction and had sent Israel into Canaan to destroy, and a harlot, according to the testimony of the scriptures. And yet she married into the ancestry of David the king. The third of those women, Ruth, was a Moabitess brought into the land by her mother-in-law or along with her mother-in-law. And of the Moabites, God said in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, let's 
Turn there for a moment. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. And the fourth of those women then was Bathsheba, whom David stole from Uriah and then (coughs) committed murder to protect his own reputation. Our Lord Jesus Christ was indeed, as Isaiah 53 says, a root out of dry ground. It was impossible for him to be born, humanly speaking, for him to be born of that line of David and Abraham. And the sixth and final thing, I think, which points us to the impossibility of this line giving birth to the seed of the woman is the wickedness of many of the kings of Judah. I'll mention just three kings who are listed here in the genealogy. Ahaz, Ahaz committed more wickedness than any of the kings who preceded him. He even set up an altar, a false altar, in the temple of God, in the courtyard of the temple of God. Manasseh, who persecuted the people of God within Judah. And Ammon, these were all exceedingly wicked kings. And yet, out of this line, God brought forth the seed of the woman. These are the these are the kinds of people then that we find in that ancestry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course it could not be otherwise because all of us are sinful and all of us are incapable of bringing forth the seed of the woman. That is why, in fact, I think, God ordained that circumcision be the sign of his covenant with Abraham. That sign is a sign connected with childbirth and points us to the need that God himself intervene in the history of his people to accomplish the fulfillment of his promise in bringing forth the seed of the woman. So that's first, this genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ that we find in Matthew shows us the impossibility that this happened apart from the gracious work of our God. But of course, Matthew also describes for us the virgin birth, another impossibility, humanly speaking. Mary is found with child of the Holy Spirit. Joseph is minded to put her away because he thinks that she has committed fornication. God comes to him and says to him, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And again, uh, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This was a human impossibility, and yet God accomplished it because he is the God who is able to do all that pleases him. Luke 1, verses 34 and 35 emphasize this truth for us. When Gabriel is talking to Mary and telling her that she will have a son, her response to him is, how can this be since I do not know a man? And his answer is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So the Incarnation is not only the joining of the human and divine natures in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we will talk about next week, God willing, but it is also the miraculous conception of our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, a virgin. This is God's work. It is also, in this same connection, a work of the triune God. The Confession speaks of the Father's involvement when it says the Father sent His Son into the world, or God sent His Son into the world. And this is a, a, a thing that our Lord Jesus Christ loved to say about himself during his earthly ministry. The Gospel according to John is full of this language. We're going to refer to just a few verses in the Gospel according to John. In this connection, we're going to look at chapter 8. And even just there in chapter 8, in one conversation which our Lord Jesus Christ had with the leaders of the Jews, he says it five times beginning with verse 16. In verse 16 we read, And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Again in verse 18, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. In verse uh, 26, Next, verse 26. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And finally, in verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. That's just in chapter 8. If you count up the number of times our Lord Jesus Christ said this, just according to the Gospel of John, it comes to more than 30 times that he said, My father sent me. 
My Father sent me. And of course, the whole point of, the, of his saying that is, I came into the world to do my Father's will. I'm here to fulfill his purposes, to accomplish his work. That's why he sent me. So it is of the Father first. The incarnation is a work of the Father. But it is also a work of the Son. We must not imagine that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was passive in his own incarnation. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, which shows us how active he was in his own incarnation. Verse 7, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. He did this. He humbled himself. And it was indeed a humiliation for him. That the only begotten and eternal Son of God should take upon himself human flesh was a great humiliation. That's the point of the confession mentioning this, I think, when it says... God sent into the world at the time appointed by him his own only begotten and eternal son. He is the one eternally begotten of the Father, true God of true God, light of light, the very God of very God, begotten of the Father, not made. And yet the Father sent him into the world. And you see that humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ very dramatically, of course, in his birth. Born in a stable, wrapped in swaddling clothes, ignored by the Jews, worshipped by just a few shepherds. He was ignored. He was despised and rejected of men. He had no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. It was indeed humiliation. We read in Psalm 113 these words. And I believe these words were fulfilled in the incarnation. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself, to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. Or in Psalm 142, verse 3, where David says this, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. David's path was a path in which his enemies were setting snares for him all around. And he says, the Lord knew his path. And the Lord knew his path because the Lord himself one day walked that path. 
came into our flesh, humbled himself, and subjected himself to the oppression and temptations of men. The Lord humbled himself on our behalf. And thirdly, this work was, of course, also a work of the Holy Spirit. As the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born of you will be called the Son of God. It was therefore a triune work. It was a work exclusively of the triune God, the God of our salvation. It is not our work in any way whatsoever. It is all of God himself. The second point that we want to make from this article is that by this incarnation, our Lord Jesus Christ assumed our human nature or united our human nature with his divine nature. The confession makes four points in this connection about the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first is that that human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ was a true human nature. And the confession makes this point over against the Anabaptists, as we see in the first lines of the second paragraph of the article. Therefore, we confess in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children. The Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation taught that Christ did not come of the flesh and blood of his mother Mary, but that God specially created the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mary's womb. It was a specially created human nature then, and did not come from the flesh and blood of Mary. But the confession goes to great lengths to refute that whole notion of the Anabaptists. And it goes to that length, I think, to make sure, remember, this confession was written to defend the Reformed faith against the accusations of Rome. It was written to distinguish the Reformed from the Anabaptists. But look at the number of passages that the confession refers to to demonstrate this, that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother. Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children, Hebrews 2, verse 14. He is a fruit of the body of David according to the flesh, Acts 2, verse 30. He is born of the seed of David according to the flesh, Romans 1, verse 3. He is a fruit of the womb of Mary, Luke 1, verse 2, 42. Born of a woman, Galatians 4, verse 4. A branch of David, Jeremiah 33, verse 15. A rod from the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11, verse 1. Sprung from the tribe of Judah, Hebrews 7, verse 14. Descended from the Jews according to the flesh of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3, verse 16, and was made like his brethren in all things. Sin accepted, Hebrews 2, verse 17, and 4, verse 15. He took a true human nature. That is, he is, in truth, a descendant of Adam, as the genealogy in Luke 
shows us. He is, in truth, a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. He came from our flesh. He was born of a woman. Not by special creation of a human nature in the womb of Mary, but rather because he is indeed our flesh and blood. And that's important, of course. It's important because it's only as he is the seed of Adam and the seed of Abraham and the seed of David that he can indeed fulfill the promises of God made to those fathers. God promised Adam, a seed of the woman, to have victory over the seed of the serpent. He promised Abraham a seed in whom the nations would be blessed. He promised David a seed to sit on his throne forever. If Christ is not indeed of the seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham, and the seed of David, he is not either the fulfillment of the promises of God. He has a true human nature. Secondly, the confession says he has a sinless human nature. Now, this was a confession that was common to all the Christians at the time of the Reformation. Not only did the Reformed confess it, but the Church of Rome confessed it, and the Anabaptists confessed it. In fact, the Anabaptists invented this idea that Christ's human nature was specially created by God because They wanted to say Mary was corrupt, just like all the other ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. And she could not, they said, then bring forth a seed that was not corrupt like herself. Adam had not done it, nor had any of the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ done it for generation after generation after generation throughout the whole history. Mary could not do it either. Therefore, God had to create specially this human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Roman Catholics taught that our Lord Jesus Christ was sinless in his human nature, but they traced it back to the immaculate conception of Mary, that Mary herself was sinless, and therefore was able to bring forth a sinless son. But the confession teaches us and the scriptures teach us that Mary was not different from us. She inherited corruption from her parents just as every other ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ inherited corruption from his or her parents. But he was preserved from corruption by the power of the Holy Spirit who conceived him in her womb. This also is an important teaching regarding the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is without sin. The spotless lambs, the lambs without blemish that the people of God were commanded to offer in the Old Testament pointed to this, uh, the importance of this. The lambs must be spotless because our Lord Jesus Christ himself, in order to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, must be spotless. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and following, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, 
harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. He is the perfect high priest and the perfect Lamb of God. And he is the one who can succeed, therefore, in our salvation as the Old Testament priests could not because they had to offer up sacrifices even for their own sins. So he has a true human nature, a sinless human nature, also a complete human nature. There were in the early history of the church those who denied the completeness of the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. For example, there were the Docetists who taught under Gnostic influences, basically, that our Lord Jesus Christ did not really become a human, that he did not really have a human body. He assumed the appearance of a human body because they felt that Matter and bodies are themselves sinful and corrupt. And salvation is deliverance from the body and from material things. And there was also a heresy that said that the Logos, the divine word, took the place in our Lord Jesus Christ of a human spirit so that he did not have a complete human nature Athanasius rightly points out in our confession too that it is necessary that he have a complete human nature in order to save us completely. He must suffer body and soul under the wrath of God to save us body and soul and spirit, if you will, from the wrath of God. If his human nature was not complete, his salvation is also not complete. And finally, the confession points out that he had a weakened human nature. That is, a human nature subject to all the infirmities of our flesh except for sin. A human nature which could grow weary, a human nature which could be ill, a human nature which could be injured, a human nature which could ultimately and did suffer death. And this, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, is a source of tremendous hope and comfort for us. Hebrews 2 says this at the very end of that chapter, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And even more beautifully, in Hebrews chapter 4, the last couple of verses of that chapter 
Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He was a real man with a real and complete human nature, weakened like our human nature, subject to all the troubles that have come upon us under God's curse, except for sin itself. And as a real man, he suffered and died on our behalf. Therefore, as the confession says at the very end of the article, he is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. That's a quotation from Isaiah 7, verse 14, the sign that God gave to wicked King Ahaz by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's the prophecy that, according to Matthew chapter 1, was fulfilled in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew quotes that very prophecy. That name means God with us, and we understand it to be literally and physically true. He is not with us in the sense, for example, that God was with his people in the Old Testament. But he is with us because he came into our flesh, became one of us, tabernacled among us, as John says in chapter 1, verse 14. He is God and man in one person. He is indeed Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And he remains Emmanuel even now, for he has taken his glorified body to sit at the right hand of God. And it is there that we seek him, and there that we hope one day to be with him. As John says in 1 John 3, we do not know what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We have our flesh in heaven. And when we go to heaven in our bodies, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He became like us and then was glorified so that we, in our human natures, might be like him. It's an astonishing and wonderful work that God has accomplished in our Lord Jesus Christ. May we give thanks to him and bless his name. God bless us with his word.